The reading of God's Word this evening is Psalm 110. I will be reading from the ESV. Psalm 110. Let us hear God's Word. A Psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power and holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Amen. Let us now go before our God in prayer. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we bow before you now. We come before you and again beseech your blessing. We acknowledge again that we are mere creatures, that not only are we separated separated from you in such a wide gulf, because you are our creator and we are creatures made in your image, but Lord God, we have sinned against you. We are fallen in our first father, Adam. We have rebelled against you. We have denied your power and your authority. We have sought to make our own selves our own gods. Our minds are darkened. Our hearts are dead and but stone. There is nothing that we can do. There is no work that we can perform. There are no words that we can say. There is nothing within us that would convince you or persuade you or somehow deserve or or earn your mercy. There is nothing that we can do to save ourselves. And yet, Father, in your grace, in your mercy, and your compassion, and your goodness, and the display of your mighty power. You have sent your only Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to live and suffer and die and be raised, and to ascend to his exaltation, to sit at your right hand on our behalf. And the Holy Spirit has worked with the same Sovereign, almighty power to call dead sinners to life in Jesus Christ. And so, Father, we rejoice, we delight, we we exalt you, our God, for you have loved us when we deserved only wrath. You have shown us mercy and kindness when we deserved only the fierceness of your anger. You have tenderly 
provided for us in all our needs and sustained our lives until you have worked in our hearts to give us new hearts, to give us faith, to rest in Christ alone. And you will not fail to preserve every single one of your dear saints until the end when Christ returns and you will bring your people safe home to glory. Father, we thank you for this wondrous and glorious salvation. We thank you, Father, that you are the one who takes sinners and makes them saints. Father, we ask that you would work tonight for your glory and for your namesake, that you would exalt yourself in our midst. We ask, Father, that you would bless and strengthen Pastor Price Jones as he comes to teach and instruct and to declare to us from your word, your will, and your glory. Father, grant that this might be so through the powerful working of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. It's my privilege this evening to introduce Pastor Price Jones. He has been an elder at Heritage Baptist Church in Mansfield for three years now, and he has been married for 18 years to my sister. And so I'm very thankful to introduce to you Price Jones, pastor of Heritage Baptist. Brother, please come. Thank you. Well, good evening. It's been a very long week, hasn't it? We're all very tired. I know I am. I know many of you are. I'm so thankful that you've given me the opportunity. It's a privilege and a joy to speak to you tonight, uh, to teach you out of the confession of faith, and I pray that it would be a blessing to your souls. As we begin tonight, uh, let me say just a few things. First, I want to make it clear that this message will be, in fact, more of a lecture than a sermon. And I say that just to set your expectations. I don't want you to get your hopes up. But what that requires of you is that you pay attention. It's been a long week and it's been a long day. And so we need to pay attention. We need to give our attention to the things that will be said tonight. And my promise to you is that if you do, it'll be a blessing to you. Second... This message tonight is an exposition of the confession of faith. We will be in the scriptures just a bit, but it's primarily an exposition of the confession, and it's quite a detailed exposition of the confession. So you're going to need your confession tonight. And so if if you have a copy of your confession, please take it out. If you don't have a copy of your confession, there's a copy in the back of the hymnals. It comes after the hymns and before the index. You can find a copy there. And if you prefer, if you have internet connection, You can find a very nice version of the Confession of Faith at www.the1689confession.com. So very clear. The1689confession.com if you would like to follow along electronically. Our goal tonight is to look at this term saints that we find in chapter 26, paragraph 6. Everything in chapter 26, paragraph 6 depends upon the meaning of this one word, saints, When we define this one word, saints, it opens up the entire paragraph. Essentially, the paragraph explains itself. So what we're going to do tonight is we're going to spend some time with this term, saints. And then we're going to spend about 90% of our time tonight on this term, saints. And then at the very, very end, we're going to take that knowledge and we're going to unlock the meaning of the rest of the paragraph. But I would like to start by reading the paragraph. Confession 26.6 reads like this. The members of these churches, 
What churches, you ask? Those churches that were defined for us last night in chapter 26, paragraph 5. The members of these churches are saints by calling, visibly manifesting and evidencing in and by their profession and walking their obedience unto that call of Christ. What call of Christ? That call of Christ that we read about in chapter 26, paragraph 5. And to willingly consent to walk together according to the appointment of Christ, that is by his command, giving up themselves to the Lord and one to another by the will of God in professed subjection to the ordinances of the gospel. So we're going to turn our attention to this word saint, saints by calling. This word saint is a term, it's a denominative term. It names an individual saint or a group of individuals saints. It names these individuals or group of individuals in order to distinguish them by a particular characteristic, namely holiness. The term saint means holy one, and it comes from a word that means holiness. So a saint is a term that distinguishes Christians from the rest of the world, and that which distinguishes them is their holiness. Now this raises a very important question, what is holiness? And this is an important question. At first it might seem a mundane question. But it's an important question because too often we take that term for granted and too often we give it a definition which is quite vague or generic. This is an important question because we too often assume that holiness simply means righteousness. Now it's true that holiness involves the idea of righteousness and we're not denying that fact at all. But holiness is, if, if holiness is just another term for righteousness, then it's a redundant term. And this would be a problem because the scripture oftentimes sets the word holiness and righteousness next to each other. There has to be some nuance that defines holiness as holiness and distinguishes it apart from these other ideas that we tend to attach to the concept of holiness. So what is holiness and how is it different from righteousness? Now, we can't tackle that question entirely tonight. But as we see how holiness refers to this term saint, we're going to make some progress in answering that question. Another problem that we have is we tend to be too generic when we use the word saint. Our thoughts go something like this. What's a saint? A saint someone is holy. What is holiness? Holiness is righteousness. A saint is someone who is righteous. A saint is someone who does the will of God. A saint is someone who's dedicated to God. Those are all great definitions. There's nothing wrong with them. But they're a little vague. When in fact the scriptures and our confession of faith and what I hope to show you tonight gives the term saints a very specific and a very definite definition. So our goal tonight is to show that this term saint specifically refers to that which distinguishes Christians from the rest of the world. Namely this, a from the heart persuaded by God commitment to follow Jesus Christ. A saint is someone who, because of the sovereign work of God in their hearts, has been divinely persuaded of the beauty, the glory, and the grace of Jesus Christ, and so has made a commitment to take up his cross and to follow Christ. Our saintship has a direct reference to the cross of Christ. Being a saint, though a sovereign work of God, is a sovereign work of God located in the human heart and the human will, leading to a committed decision to take up one's cross and to follow Jesus Christ. Now to show this to you, we're going to draw two lines tonight. 
So it's going to take some work, some expositional work. We're going to start with the scriptures. We're going to draw a line from the scriptures to the confession. We're going to start in Colossians chapter 1, verse 12 and 13. You can go ahead and turn there. We're going to show how the confession reflects this scriptural idea of saints. We're going to develop the term from the scriptures very briefly and show how the confession reflects this. Then we're going to draw a second line. And that second line is going to be a a line that runs through the confession itself so that we can see how the confession particularly and specifically defines this concept of saint. So look with me at Colossians chapter 1, verse 12 and 13. We're going to draw this line from Colossians to the confession. I'm reading out of the ESV. Colossians chapter 1, verse 12. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. It's helpful to think of these two verses as being parallel statements. They are set in opposition to one another. What verse 12 states is explained in verse 13 and vice versa. Verse 12 tells us plainly that the Father qualifies us to share the inheritance of the saints and the lights. Verse uh, verse 13 tells us that to qualify us at least includes two ideas. He delivers us and he transfers us. The idea that the Father delivers us refers to how he delivers us or rescues us from the domain of darkness. That is from the dominion of sin. Its grip and its power over us, especially its grip and its power over our wills, over our hearts. That's the whole idea of the dominion of sin is it has a grip on our will. We're not free. We're in bondage to sin. God rescues us from the domain of darkness. It's a sovereign act of God, but it's located in the human will. He delivers us. The idea of transferal refers to how the Father has moved us from one domain to the other domain, from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his dear Son. Some translations use the word convey or to translate. There's a transferal, there's a movement. This idea, this movement, this word is used in scripture to refer to the instance of removing someone from an office. It means to move. It's used to refer to the moving of mountains. Here in this particular case, it takes on the connotation of a movement of the will by persuasion. You can see this in a place like Acts 19.26, where it says that Paul persuaded and turned away many in Asia away from idols. He transferred them. He, he, trans, he moved them. He persuaded them away from their idols. He acted upon their wills. This is what the Father is doing. He's translating. He's conveying. He's transferring. The Father delivers us, but he does so through moving by persuasion from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved Son. This deliverance is a sovereign act of God and includes and presupposes regeneration, but it operates through the instrumentality of a movement of the human will, a persuasion. If we step back and look at this passage, then we can see something wonderful. To be qualified for the inheritance of the saints necessarily includes this sovereign act of moral or spiritual persuasion. God qualifies us by persuading us. The logic of the passage is simple. To be qualified for the inheritance of the saints is the same as being qualified as a saint. To be qualified as a saint is the same as being transferred. Being transferred is the same as being sovereignly, but in the individual human heart, persuaded. 
Therefore, to be a saint means to be persuaded by God to come out of sin and to come into the kingdom of the dear son. This is the essence of the term saint. A careful look at the term saint and the rest of scripture would yield similar results. One of the clearest passages on this is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. It's a classic text on this question of saint. Many of you are familiar with it. It states this, to the church that is in Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those, we would say, who are also saints. But this is how Paul puts it. He says, all of those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. To be a saint is to call upon Jesus Christ and to follow him as Lord. The confession picks up on this. It picks up on this language of translation. And so it includes this concept in our confession. If you'll look with me in your confession at chapter 9, paragraph 4. Now, this is a significant place because chapter 9 is the chapter on free will. And chapter 9, paragraph 4 specifically is the paragraph on regeneration, that is the freedom of the will from the bondage of sin. Chapter 9, paragraph 4, when God converts a sinner and translates him, that's a direct reference to Colossians 1, 12, and 13, into a state of grace, there's the removal from the meaning of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. He frees him from the natural bondage under sin. There's the deliverance of the father. And by his grace alone enables him freely to will and to do that which is spiritually good. There's this translation. There's this persuasion. It occurs in the human will. He enables him freely to will and to do. This is why we read Psalm 110. Christ's people are volunteers on the day of his power. They offer themselves freely on the day of his power in the beauties of holiness. He enables him freely to will and to do that which is spiritually good. This is a sovereign act of God in the human will. We can make an assumption here that that which is spiritually good refers to coming to Christ in faith. That's our highest spiritual good. There is no higher spiritual good than that. The highest spiritual good of any sinner is to place his faith in God's son and to make a commitment to take up his cross and to follow him into glory. So we conclude that what it means to be a saint is for the will to be persuaded of the beauty, the glory, and the grace of Christ, and in being persuaded to reach out and to lay hold of him by faith, and in a firm commitment, a decision to follow him, specifically to take up one's cross and to follow him. So this is our first line. There's a line from the scriptures to the confession. Colossians 1 to 9, 4. Sovereign act of God in delivering us from sin, persuading us into the kingdom of the dear son, enabling us to will and to do that which is spiritually good. Now we want to take a, a second look. We have a second line that we need to draw. Here what we want to do is draw a line through the confession. And we're going to simply start where we are here in chapter 26.6, saints by calling. And we're going to draw a line through the confession we want to hear what the confession has to say to us. We want to listen to the confession and for it to define for us what it says and what it teaches a saint is. We're going to find similar results, of course. Now, this is going to be a long line. That was a simple line. We drew one little simple line from Colossians 1 to 9.4. I'm about to take you on a journey. <laughs> it's a very long path, and it's a windy path, and in some places it's knotted. 
And so again, I just ask you to pay attention to me and stay with me here. I want to give you a, a, an overview of the line just so you see where we're going here, and then we're going to spend some time on each point. We're going to start in 26.6. 26.6 going to lead us to 26.5. 26.5 is going to lead us to 10.1. 10.1 is going to take us back to 9.4, which is good because that's going to intersect the line that we've already drawn. Then we're going to go back to 10.1. 10.1 to 3.5 to 8.1 to 26.5 to 26.6 to back to 10.1. The 13-1, and 13-1 is a great place to end when we're dealing with the term saints because 13-1 deals with sanctification, or that is holiness. <clears throat> so there's a line. We're going to start with 26-6. 26-6 opens like this. The members of these churches, we've asked the question, what churches? Those churches that were defined in 26-5. In 26-5, we're told that the churches are communities made up of those who are called out of the world through the ministry of the word. That is those who are effectually called and those who are given to Christ by the father. That is those who have been predestined, elected before the world began. Whatever it means to be a saint, it is the result of and in some sense includes being effectually called and predestined or eternally elected. We can now draw a line from 26.5 along these two lines. We want to find out more about effectual calling. We want to find out more about predestination. We're going to follow the line of effectual calling to 10.1. Chapter 10, paragraph 1 is the paragraph on effectual calling. So if you'll turn there with me, we'll take a look at chapter 10, paragraph 1. We're going to spend some time here. We'll keep coming back to it. The first thing that we want to notice from chapter 10, paragraph 1, is that there's a line back to 9-4, which deals with regeneration. I'm going to read the paragraph to you. What I want you to notice is in the middle of the paragraph. Chapter 10, paragraph 1, it begins like this. Those whom God hath predestinated unto life. We're going to come back to that. We do want to follow this line of predestination, as we just said. We'll come back to it. Those whom God hath predestinated unto life, he is pleased in his appointed and accepted time, effectually to call by his word and spirit out of a state of sin and death in which they are by nature to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ. Now, the next few phrases that we're going to read here are, in in, in essence, a repetition of what we've already seen in 9.4. They deal with the doctrine of regeneration. And in some sense, these particular phrases are filling out what we saw condensed in 9.4. They're going to explain 9.4 to us a little bit. They're going to open it up. Listen to what the text says. Enlightening their minds... This is what God does when he effectually calls us. He enlightens their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God. This is an action that's taking place in the individual mind. Taking away their heart of stone and giving them a heart of flesh. This happens in the individual heart. Renewing their wills. The mind and the heart are operations of the will. God regenerates. He renews the will. This is an act of God in the human will. And by his almighty power, determines them to that which is good, effectually drawing them to Jesus Christ. This confirms what we've already said from 9.4, that the highest spiritual good of any sinner is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is our highest spiritual good. To be drawn to him is our greatest good. Effectual calling, then, includes an effectual drawing due to regeneration. 
That is an in-the-will work of persuading a person to believe in and to follow Jesus Christ. A saint is someone who has been drawn to Christ. He's been persuaded in the will, in the mind, in the heart. He's moved. It's the Father who's moved him. These are the things that we've seen already. Second, we want to notice from 10.1, we want to pick up this line following the line of predestination. Again, notice the beginning of 10.1. Those whom God hath predestinated unto life. I want to follow this line of predestination. This is a reference to 3.5 in our confession. You don't have to turn there. 3.5 teaches us the doctrine of predestination. And what's important to notice from 3.5 is that it teaches us that predestination has specific reference to Jesus Christ. We're chosen in Christ. We're predestinated in reference and in relationship to Christ. If we were to turn to 3.5, we could read it like this. Those of mankind that are predestined to life, God before the foundation of the world hath chosen in Christ unto everlasting glory. This language chosen in Christ is important. And it's further explained in paragraph or in chapter 8, paragraph 1. Turn there with me in your confession. Chapter 8, 1. Chapter 8, 1 reads like this. It pleased God in his eternal purpose to choose and to ordain the Lord Jesus. There's the Father's election of Christ, his election of the Son, his only begotten Son, according to the covenant between them both to be the mediator between God and man, the prophet, priest, and king, head and savior of his church, the heir of all things and judge of the world. Now notice this language unto whom he did from all eternity give a people to be his seed and to be by him in time redeemed, called, justified, sanctified, and glorified. So that our predestination isn't simply an election. It's an election in Christ. And it's not simply an election in Christ. It's a being given to the Son by the Father. This means that being predestined is the same thing as being chosen in Christ, and being chosen in Christ is the same thing as being given to the Son from all eternity. In other words, being predestined is the same as being united to Christ from all eternity. The Father gives us to the Son. It's a union. It's implicit in the text. It's not explicitly called a union, but it's necessarily contained in the language. The Father gives us to the Son. He gives us to the Son so the Son might redeem us. This is a union in eternity. And this is interesting because the confession then is teaching a a union with Christ from all eternity. That's not very surprising to us, I don't think. Now, what is interesting is that typically when we think of union with Christ, we think of union with Christ in time, not in eternity. We think of union with Christ by faith. We think of the the experience of being united to Christ by faith and all that that means for us and the benefits that that we receive. And so as we notice that chapter 8, paragraph 1, teaches to us union with Christ from eternity, we ask ourselves the question, does the confession teach union with Christ in time? And that's a question that we're going to answer here shortly. But it's a question that we want to keep in the back of our mind at this point. So now this language, we followed this path. We started in 26.6, saints by calling. It took us to 26.5. 26.5 opened up two paths to us, effectual calling and predestination. We followed both of those paths. 
And so this brings us back in some sense to 26.5, where we, we read that Jesus calls us out of the world, that we're effectually called by him. Those given to him by the Father, those who are predestinated, united to him in eternity by the Father in election. And this brings us back to 26.6. It's these people, the effectually called and the predestined, that the confession terms saints by calling. So we've come full circle. To be a saint means to be effectually called, regenerated, and elected by God, understood under the rubric of union with Jesus Christ from eternity. So in some sense, we might be content at this point and say, well, we've defined our term. This is what a saint is. This is what the confession calls a saint. But there's more. There's much more. We haven't finished looking all at all of chapter 10, paragraph 1 on effectual calling. Number one, we have a lot of questions that are dangling. This whole union with Christ question, this whole idea that God is persuading us and working us from the will This gives us a nice and neat, tidy definition of our sainthood from the perspective of the divine. But it hasn't satisfied us in terms of of the subject, of the human, of of the will, of the heart. And so we need to get back to 10.1. So we go back to chapter 10, paragraph 1. And there's a couple of things that we want to notice. First... Chapter 10, paragraph 1, does confirm to us that there is an important subjective element to all of this that locates effectual calling in the human will. You can see this at the very end of paragraph 1. The language at the very end of the paragraph confirms this. It says this, at the very, very end, just those few phrases. Yet so as they come most freely, being made willing by his grace. This is a sovereign work of God in the human will. Look with me at chapter 10, paragraph 2. Chapter 10, paragraph 2 explains some things and answers some important questions for us, and it's helpful to look at. Chapter 10, paragraph 2 reads like this. This effectual call is of God's free and special grace alone, not from anything at all foreseen in man, nor from any power or agency in the creature co-working with his special grace. It's a sovereign work of God. The creature being wholly passive therein, being dead in sins and trespasses. Now notice this next word because it's a very important word, until. Until. That's a big until. (laughs) That until is the difference between passive and active. That until is the difference between not cooperating and cooperating. Until being quickened and renewed by the Holy Spirit, he is thereby enabled to answer this call and to embrace the grace, to embrace the grace offered and conveyed in it, and that by no less power than that which raised up Christ from the dead. What it means to be a saint is to embrace Christ by the power of his resurrection. The next thing we need to notice from 10.1 is that there's a line that we can draw from 10.1 to 13.1. deals with three broad ideas taken as a whole. And this is important. 10.1 10.1 deals with election. We saw that at the beginning of 
the paragraph, those whom God hath predestinated unto life, understanding that that's election under the idea of union with Christ from eternity. Chapter 10.1 has dealt with regeneration, and 10.1 has it's dealt with effectual calling itself. And so the question that we now ask, is there some place in the confession that deals with union with Christ, regeneration, effectual calling, all in one place? Can we, are, are we stuck? Are we at the end of our line? Did the confession sort of leave us hanging? And no, it didn't. Of course, there is a place that, that deals with union with Christ, regeneration, and effectual calling all in one place, and that place is 13.1 on sanctification. This is a good place to be if we're dealing with the definition of the term saints, which means holy ones. So look with me at chapter 13, paragraph 1. We're not going to read the whole paragraph. It reads like this. They who are united to Christ, effectually called and regenerated, having a new heart and a new spirit created in them through the virtue of Christ's death and resurrection, are also farther sanctified, really and personally, through the same virtue by his word and spirit dwelling in them. Now these words, the virtue of Christ's death and resurrection, means the power of the cross. Those who are united to Christ, predestinated, united to him in eternity, effectually called and regenerated, having a new heart and a new spirit created in them through the power of the cross, are also farther sanctified, really and personally, through the power of the message of the cross, through the same virtue by the word of the Spirit dwelling in them. And here we have it, our reference to the cross of Jesus Christ. The dominion of sin is broken in our lives by the power of the cross, and we were moved into the kingdom by the power of the message of the cross. To be a saint has a direct reference to the power of the cross to the message of the power of the cross. We need to say a few things about this paragraph. We want to say something about this phrase, united to Christ. And then we want to say something about definitive sanctification. So first, let's look at this phrase, union with Christ. They who are united to Christ. So far, we've been speaking about union with Christ in terms of union from eternity. But the confession speaks of another kind of union. Look with me at chapter 8, paragraph 8. Chapter 8, paragraph 8. To all those for whom Christ has obtained eternal redemption. That's a vague reference back to union with Christ from eternity. Being given, the Father giving us to the Son, choosing us in Christ before the foundation of the world. To all those for whom Christ has obtained eternal redemption, he does certainly and effectually apply and communicate the same eternal redemption, making intercession for them. Notice this next language. Because there's not only a union with Christ in eternity, there's a union with Christ in time. Uniting them to himself by his spirit, revealing to them in and by the word, the mystery of salvation, persuading them to believe, and to obey. Notice this union then is by the Spirit revealing to them in and by his word the mystery of salvation. What is the mystery of salvation if it's not the message of the cross of Jesus Christ? 
What is the mystery of salvation if it's not the idea that God assumes a human nature in order to die for his people? What is the mystery of salvation if it's not the idea that the one who has life in himself dies for the sins of his people? What is the mystery of salvation if it's not this mystery, that the one who is sinless, the one who is the definition of sinlessness, is called a sinner so that sinners might be called righteous? The mystery of salvation is the cross of Jesus Christ, his death and his resurrection. Christ unites his people to himself, revealing, and he does it by revealing to them, by his spirit, the power of God. And the word, specifically the word, is understood as the, as the message of the cross. Notice also that he persuades them. This union is a persuasion. It's a sovereign work of God that persuades and so results in faith and repentance in the life of the believer, to take up one's cross and to follow Christ. So there's two unions. There's one from eternity, and there's one in time. There's one in the counsel of God before the foundations of the world, and there's one in the subjective experience of the believer. God unites us to Christ in eternity. He gives us to the Son, And in time and space, through the effectual calling, we reach out and lay hold of Jesus Christ. We're united to him by faith. This is why Psalm 110 again speaks of the fact that Christ's people offer themselves up willingly on the day of his power. They are volunteers on the day of his power. Secondly, then notice that 13.1 distinguishes two kinds of sanctification. Now, I'm going to do my best to explain this. If you get lost, that's okay. I'm a finite creature. I've done my best to prepare for this. If you have questions, you can ask me after the message. I'm going to read 13.1 again. We're going to distinguish some things. We're going to see some things here. I first of all want you to notice that there is a distinction in 13.1 between the objective divine work of God in sanctification and that work of sanctification that is operated on in the human will, in the human heart. There's there's the objective side, the subjective side, the divine side, the human side. Notice the language very carefully. Those who are united to Christ, effectually called and regenerated. Now we've already seen that all three of those things have both objective and subjective aspects to them, divine and human. But for just a moment, let's suspend our disbelief and look at them under the rubric of divine. This is a work of God. God unites us to Christ. God effectually calls us. God regenerates us. It produces a new heart and a new spirit created in us by the power of the cross, through the virtue of Christ's death and resurrection. These same are also further sanctified really and personally. This is the subjective side of the coin. Through the same virtue, that is by the power of the cross, by his word and spirit dwelling in them. That's by the power of the message of the cross. So it's objective, subjective. But I also want you to notice here in 13.1 that there's a definitive and a progressive. They who are united to Christ, effectually called and regenerated. Having a new heart and new spirit created in them through the 
power of the cross. That's definitive, brothers. That's once and for all. And there's an objective side to it and a subjective side to it. They're not just united to Christ in eternity. They're also united to Christ in time. They're not just effectually called, but part of effectual calling is the response to that call. They're regenerated, which renews their wills, enabling them to true spiritual good. Once and for all, definitive. Those who are definitively sanctified are also farther sanctified. Progressive sanctification. Really and personally, through the same virtue, the power of the cross dwelling in them. Notice the next phrase. The dominion of the whole body of sin is destroyed. That's a once and for all. That's definitive sanctification. And the several lusts thereof are more and more weakened. There's your progressive side of the coin on sanctification. So there's a sanctification that results as a result of election, calling, and regeneration, a definitive sanctification, one marked by a definitive break with sin, and a second kind, one that is progressive through the life of the believer. There is a negative aspect to definitive sanctification, the breach with sin. There's also a positive aspect. That is this commitment produced by the power of the message of the cross to take up one's cross and to follow Jesus Christ. Now, this commitment is not perfect, but it is definitive. And the believer will make progress in it. It has been produced by the sovereign power of God. It may be weak, it may be tainted by sin, but it's genuine and it's real. And the believer will make progress in it. It may wax, it may wane. But the promise of the scriptures is that it will continue to grow until it is perfected in glory. And so we've reached the end of our line. Sainthood refers specifically to this new persuasion, this this commitment to trust it and to follow Jesus Christ, following from a new heart, a new love for Christ produced by regeneration, rooted in election, affected by the word and the spirit's calling in time. And here when we think of the word, we're not thinking of the word in general terms. We're thinking of the word specifically, the message of the mystery of salvation. That's what the confession has taught us to think. The message of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the message of the cross. And so there's an application to us here, brothers, to preach the cross and to renew our commitment to preach the cross. There's power in this message. It's the power of God for salvation, Paul says. Let us renew our commitment to preach the cross. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.2. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Not just Jesus Christ, but Jesus Christ crucified. Specific reference to the cross. Preaching isn't just pointing people to Christ. It's preaching the cross and the message of the cross. This is the power of God. This is that power which persuades, which breaks the power of sin and translates a sinner into the kingdom of God's dear son. Let us preach the cross. This is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.4 that it's the preaching of Christ and him crucified that's the demonstration of the spirit and of power. This term saint, therefore, specifically refers to that which distinguishes Christians from the rest of the world, namely a from the heart, committed decision, having been persuaded by God, 
having been persuaded by the power of the message of the cross and the power of the Holy Spirit to follow Jesus Christ. Specifically, to take up one's cross and to follow him. So that we can say to be a saint boils down to this. A saint is someone who by the power of the message of the cross rooted in the eternal electing and regenerating work of God, applied in the power of the life-giving spirit, has become fully and divinely persuaded of the beauty, the glory, and the grace of Jesus Christ in his cross work, so that the saint is willing and able to say no to sin, to turn from sin, to take up his cross, and to follow Jesus Christ now and forever in a new life of service to God. He has heard the message of the cross. He has believed the message of the cross. He's been baptized into the message of the cross. He's been made one body with those who have believed the message of the cross. He's living the message of the cross, and he is being defined and redefined entirely, individually, and corporately into the image of Jesus Christ by the power of the message of the cross. He is fundamentally distinct and cut apart from the world and from the rest of humanity. A fundamental break has occurred. He loves Jesus Christ. He lives for Jesus Christ. He is a saint. This is all rooted in the new persuasion that God has worked in his heart. The saint is the one who is fully persuaded by the cross and therefore committed and decided to follow Christ to the cross and into glory. His holiness is defined by this persuasion and therefore this commitment. He's definitively sanctified. He's defined by a new operating principle in his life, a commitment to follow Christ. This commitment may not be perfect. In fact, it's not perfect, not in this life. It may not be as strong as we would like it to be. It may not be as strong as the saint would like it to be. But he's committed. And the promise of the confession, which is the promise of the scriptures, is that through the use of means and by the powerful working of the sanctifying spirit of Christ, it grows. And the saint grows in grace, perfecting holiness in the fear of God, pressing after a heavenly life and evangelical obedience to all the commands of Christ. He's a follower of Christ. This is the teaching of our confession. This is a saint. And so there's application here for all of us tonight. This is an opportunity for us to renew our love for Jesus Christ. To renew our commitment to follow him. We've been persuaded. We've been brought to life. We've been brought to life by the powerful working of the resurrection of Christ himself. By the very power that raised him from the dead. That's the power that's at work in us. Let us renew our commitment by the grace of God and the help of the Holy Spirit to take up our cross and to follow him. And brothers, if you feel weak, that's the right way to feel. It should drive us to our knees to pray. It's only the Lord who produces this in the heart of man, but it is the Lord that produces it. And it is the effect of the Almighty God, the effect of the work of God in our lives. And you say to yourself, where do I find the strength to do this? Where do I find renewal? Are you languishing? Are you, do you need renewal in your, in your commitment to Christ? Where are you going to find the strength? Where are you going to find the power, the renewal, in the message of the cross of Christ? Where do you find the message of the cross of Christ? But in the preaching of the word, the preaching of Christ and him crucified. Where do you find the message of the cross? But the, but the observance of baptism. 
where new believers are baptized into the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Where do you find the strength? But at the Lord's table, where we feast upon and we feed on the body and the blood of our Savior in the context of his resurrection. Renew your commitment to Christ. So having established this, this definition of saint, a follower of Christ, and thinking about the, the full scope of all that God does in producing that commitment. The paragraph before us exposits itself. It explains itself. And I'll be brief here, but we do have a few more things to say. Look with me in your confession back to 26.6. Let's exposit this paragraph together, keeping the things that we just thought about in mind. Now I'm going to read through this paragraph. I'm going to make some comments, so you might want to follow along with your finger or a pen or something. We'll look up every once in a while. Chapter 26.6. The members of these churches are saints by calling. They are those who have been powerfully, by a sovereign work of God, persuaded of the beauty, the glory, and the grace of Christ and the cross, and so have committed themselves to turn from their sin, to trust in Christ, and to follow him. Those are the members of these churches. Visibly manifesting and evidencing, in and by their profession and walking, their obedience unto that call of Christ, their commitment can be seen. It's visible. It's obvious. It gives evidence. There are fruits. This evidence falls under two categories. First, the tongue or the mouth. They make a profession. Secondly, their hands or their feet, they walk. They make a profession of following Christ. They confess Christ with their mouth. This is like what Paul says in Romans 10. Whoever believes in his heart and confesses in his mouth that Jesus is Lord will be saved. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. They give evidence of this commitment to Christ in their walk. They walk in Christ's ways. They obey him. This can be seen in a numerous, uh, I'm sorry, in numerous ways, but it differs from person to person, circumstance to circumstance. It refers to things like an individual's obedience to Christ in baptism or public profession of faith or church membership, faithful attendance, obedience in the stations of life, wives submitting to husbands, husbands leading, parents admonishing, children obeying, etc., etc., personal war with sin and various lust, etc., etc., lust of the body, lust of the mind, etc., etc., There's evidence of this commitment to Christ. This is like what Christ himself says in Matthew 16, 24. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. We do have to be careful about perfectionism here. and We've stated a few things on that point already. This is not a perfect commitment. And it doesn't manifest itself perfectly, but it does manifest itself. It can be a very weak one, but it's a genuine one. It's a commitment and a love for Christ and his cross. So we carry on in the paragraph. They do willingly consent to walk together according to the appointment of Christ. Here we see again their willingness, this love that's boiling up from within them as the new life of God is at work within them. This has a special uh, reference. uh, This particular phrase has special reference to the close relationship that exists between 26.5 and 26.6. There's a relationship between 26.5 and 26.6. The relationship between those paragraphs goes something like this. In 26.5, Christ commands his people to walk together in societies or churches. In 26.6, his people fully persuaded of the beauty, the glory, the grace of Christ displayed on the cross, both at his death and his resurrection, so willingly walk. It's a beautiful picture. Christ commands, his people obeys. 
then finally we read these words, giving up themselves to the Lord and one to another by the will of God in professed subjection to the ordinances of the gospel. There's six things that we want to notice here, but we very briefly. Number one, notice they give themselves up. Here's, and again, this expression of this persuasion, this commitment. There's a love, a devotion, a dedication, a decided love. They give themselves up. They give themselves up to the Lord. They're willing volunteers of the day of Christ's power. They give themselves up to the Lord, to the Lord Jesus. They give themselves up to one another, it says. This is in a local church context, of course. If you want to know what that looks like, look at, look at Confession chapter 27. In fact, I would encourage all of you, when you read the confession and you read chapter 26, always include chapter 27. They go hand in hand. I was taught that by an old pastor, but it's good advice. Chapter 26 deals with the organization of the church. Chapter 27 deals with the life of the church, the communion of the saints. They're sharing each other's gifts and their love for one another. This is the idea. They give themselves up to one another. They do so by the will of God. I think this is a full phrase, so we can't say all that there is to say here, but let's just suffice it to say this. It means at least this, that they give themselves up to one another by the love of God, which has produced in them a love for God. There's so much more we could say there. I really do believe it's a full phrase. They do so in professed subjection, it says. Again, a totally committed from the heart following of Christ, a professed subjection. And finally, to the ordinances of the gospel. This, I don't think, refers to baptism and the Lord's Supper. It refers to the doctrines of the gospel. It refers to the gospel itself. If you want to see an argument for that, I don't have time to produce it, uh, reproduce it for you here. You can look uh, at the proof text in your confession. 2 Corinthians 9.13 is stated as a proof text. Go read John Gill's commentary on 2 Corinthians 9.13 and how he defines this idea of the ordinances of the gospel. I think he's a good representative of what's meant there. It means the gospel itself, all the doctrines of the grace of God. So here we're going to conclude. The members of churches are those who have been persuaded by God in the powerful working of the message of the cross, of the beauty, the glory, and the grace of Christ at his death and resurrection, and so have made a commitment to trust in him, to take up their cross and to follow him. And they prove this persuasion and this commitment through giving themselves up in a wholehearted, though not perfect in this life, love and devotion to Jesus Christ and to one another, to the very message of the gospel itself in the context of the local church. Let's go to a word in prayer. Our great God and our Father, we come before you this evening so thankful for your grace in our life, for your sovereign work of saving us from our sins, delivering us from the kingdom of darkness, and your sovereign power in translating us into the kingdom of your dear Son. We give you thanks for Jesus Christ, our Savior and our King, and we pray that you would increase our love for him and our love for one another. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.